0: We began our family month with a message entitled, When My Family Isn't Perfect. And uh, that message has had quite the viral life, pinging and bouncing around Facebook and Vimeo and different places that people have been uh, watching it and apparently recommending it. I don't know how people feel when... Your family is recommended to listen to the message when my family isn't perfect, but that's sort of the point, isn't it? We're all imperfect families, for sure. So a lot of people could relate to that message, and uh, it's uh, had quite a run online. But you know, it's one thing to not quite be a perfect family. It's another thing to be on the other end of the spectrum and to be a seriously messed up family, right? Right. Uh, imperfect family, not quite the way we want, we need some grace, stretchy love, things we got to get over, yes. Seriously messed up family is a family that is in major crisis, is a family that has systemic long-term dysfunction, is a family perhaps with an event or a sin in the past that has long-term consequence. Not every family is seriously messed up, but many, many families are. And over the years of ministering here, I have seen terrible things that family members will do against each other. Those include firsthand stories that I could tell you of uh, families that are, and family members that are suing each other, family members that are doing violence against each other, Family members that are literally shooting guns to kill each other. Sexual abuse, abandonment, hateful and bitter words. And just about anything else you can imagine, we have seen firsthand amongst families. And I'm not a parole officer, okay? I'm a pastor, right? And we're generally on the, in the pond of society that believes in moral values and believes in the family and yet families can get really messed up can't they and it is heartbreaking to see a family that just implodes or explodes in the pain that it produces so you might be here today and you're like that's so my family well i got a message for you you might be here and say that's not really us but i'll bet you want to avoid going there don't you so really this applies to all of us what should we do When we are in a family situation and it is really, really messed up. And my assumption in this, I need to make this clear because if this message, like the Imperfect Family message, goes online, um, I don't know if you're watching this live, I don't know if you're watching this at one of our campuses, I don't know if you're watching this on Facebook or wherever, but I want to make this clear to everybody that I'm speaking from the perspective of a Christian, okay, a Christian Christian family member who is in this situation. What I'm going to talk about applies to a Christian in a situation like that. And if you are not a Christian, I would encourage you to ask the question, might God have brought the family pain into your life to bring you to a point of brokenness, where you see that your family can't save you, and that you need a Savior, and maybe your pain could lead you to faith in Jesus Christ? And I want to strongly encourage you to do that. So I begin there, okay? I begin there. Today I have four resolutions for a Christian in a messed up family. Four resolutions for a Christian in a messed up family. And I'd like to describe what I'm talking about with this. And I've designed a chart here, a chart of family pain. And see if you can relate to this. When it comes to pain and dysfunction, you really have different kinds of pain in a family. Uh, So on on the one side of this chart, you have an increasing severity of offense. Okay, so this would be offensive, but not that bad. This is like really bad. Okay? At the same time, you have the length of consequence for that offense. So uh, you have not as consequential to really, really consequential. All right? So to describe this this way, you have some things that are... Not that offensive, and they don't really have that long of a consequence when you're in a family. So this is the person who is upset because, you know, the brother got the larger piece of dessert and goes ballistic and storms off, and later comes back and is like, oh, that's, that was stupid," and everyone's like, "Yeah, that was stupid." And you, you go on and you watch the Super Bowl and everything's fine, right? So that's, and that's like every day in the family, okay? We we all kind of live right here, stretchy love, love covers a multitude of sins, that's that's that right there. You have some offenses that are more offensive, okay? They're a greater sin, but they don't have any long-term consequence, really. And, you know, this would be uh, something that, uh, the family is able to get over it, okay? It was a big deal, but we got past it, and we've moved on. Because there weren't any consequences, really, for whatever happened or what was said or the offense itself. Then you have, in, whoops, in this, in this quadrant, you have consequences, but the act wasn't that uh, offensive. This is like stupidity that has long-term consequence. Okay, so this is... You know, this is the, the, the teenage son who thought it'd be awesome to TP the principal's house, gets caught, and is working diligently on the GED, okay? It was stupid, okay, it was stupid, but it's got longer-term consequence here, and uh, we'll get through it, okay? Because we can forgive it, we just got to deal with the consequences of it. What I'm talking about in this message is this sort of quadrant four right here. Where what has happened in the family is a big deal, very hard to get over, and has long-term consequences. That kind of long-term baggage, dysfunction, and all of the chaos that it creates in a family, that's what we're talking about today. So, today. so this isn't the angry word at the dinner table, that's the imperfect family message. Go back and listen to that. This is... Uh, uh, This is describing, dad's left us, mom's an alcoholic, sister has two kids out of wedlock, living in the basement, brother is gay, and I'm the only Christian, what do I do? That's what I'm talking about, okay? And maybe you can relate to this. You're like, that sounds a lot like my family. Now you're interested, and I hope that you are. So does the Bible have anything to say about seriously messed up families and i'm glad to tell you that yes it does in fact very prominently it talks about really really messed up families probably ones that would give your family a run for the money for example the first oldest brother that ever was murdered his younger brother the son of the patriarch jacob the sons of the patriarch jacob kidnapped and sold as a slave their brother joseph then lied to dad about it for 22 years. The son of King David raped his sister and was later murdered by his brother. That murderous brother treacherously betrayed his father, King David. Sound like your family? Moses' own sister turned against him. Solomon married 1,000 women. And we can only imagine the dysfunction in that sorority, right? So you look in the Bible, and and these are some of the heroes. David, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, Solomon. These are the heroes, and you look at their family, and it's just like a freak show. What? Really? Godly men? Men of fame with families like that? Yes, indeed, that is the Bible. In fact, Martin Luther adds some humor to this when he said this. Think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years. Eve would say, you ate the apple, and Adam would retort, you gave it to me. It was funnier in the 15th century. Oh. So the point that I'm making is this, that the Bible has a remarkable honesty about human relationships and family relationships and how easily those can get sideways and do so with tremendous pain. And uh, this is life in a broken world. This is life in biological DNA relationship with family members who are also sinners. I mean, even my own family, the DeWitt family, I can tell you in my extended historical family tree include little secrets like children born, secret children born across national borders, stolen inheritances, questionable lineage, assumed identities, faked marriages, and those are just the dead family members. That's the DeWitt family. I would suspect your family has, shall we say, a few skeletons in the closet. And maybe they're not in the closet. And really, this message is not the skeletons in the closet. It's the skeletons that are sitting in the middle of the, of the kitchen table. Right there, constantly creating problem and discord and conflict. And your family is just crazy. What do we do? How do we handle that? When you're the Christian in the big mess... And here now I have four resolutions for the Christian in the midst of the seriously messed up family. Here's the first one. I will resolve to realize that my self-identity is ultimately in Christ, not in my family. As a Christian, my identity is ultimately in Christ, Not in my family. This is a hard one right here. And it's hard because we begin life wired and experiencing our identity primarily in our family. So that, like, your name from the beginning, Steve is my given name, DeWitt is my family name. My whole life, I have self-identified with my family, and so have you. We're wired for that. We're wired for our primary source of identity, security, and sense of belonging to be our biological family. And this is one reason why it hurts so much when that family is seriously messed up, is that there is something in us that we feel that we ought to be able to relate in healthy ways with our family. And then, often, it's not healthy. An example of this uh, feeling sort of lost when I don't have a family to identify with, we see in the movie Castaway. Some of you might remember, the, it's been out a while, Tom Hanks starred in the movie Castaway. And so it's the story of, you know, he's like a business executive and his plane crashes and um, he ends up on this island in the, I don't even know where it is, Pacific somewhere And he's all alone, right? So he's just there scratching out life when one day debris comes up on shore and in the debris is a volleyball, right? And uh, the volleyball had a name. What was the volleyball's name? Okay, apparently you've seen the movie, right? So Wilson, and the volleyball was made by the company Wilson, and he just assumed that was his name. And the rest of the movie, right up until the end, Wilson is his family and he talks with him has dinner with him you know uh, sleeps at night around the fire with him and the funny thing about us watching that is that it almost seems plausible that we would do the same thing wouldn't it why because we see in the Hanks character the need that we as human beings have to have identity in some relationship and we don't have anything even a volleyball, That'll do. Okay, we'll make that do. And some of you are like, that, my family member, they remind me of Wilson. Their conversational ability is somewhat like Wilson's. Where do we want to have identity from the beginning of our life at the top of the list is our family, our biological family. But something happens when we become a Christian. Many things happen. But one of the things that happens when we become a Christian is that we gain a new family, and we gain a new identity. And this family, the Bible calls the family of God, and the head of the family of God is God the Father. He is, the, he is, he is our Father. He is the good, good Father. That's who He is. It's who He is, as we just got done singing. He is the head of this new family, and we are granted a new family identity. We are children of the Most High God. And here are some verses that talk about this. John 1, 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians two nineteen. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. An example of what I'm talking about as far as this sort of dual identity, we find with Moses. And Hebrews 11 talks about how Moses chose one identity over the other, and it says this in verse 24, that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, who was his mom functionally his whole life? Pharaoh's daughter was his mom, not his biological mom, but for all Moses knew, it was his, she was his mom choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, we could say the family of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And we even see this with Jesus himself. Listen to this account. You've probably read it, but it's one of these ones that makes you go, what is he talking about here? This is what happened. Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the people, he being Jesus, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Okay, so he's in some kind of a building facility, might have been a home. He's teaching, places packed out. His mother, Mary, his uh, brothers, his sisters, they come. They're outside the door and they want to talk to him. Now, what would every good son do in a moment like that? When your mom comes, when your mama wants to talk to you, what do you do? You go talk to her, right? And mama said amen to that, right? You go talk to her. But look what Jesus does. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that sounds a little disrespectful, doesn't it? Like, he wasn't being a good son. He must not have loved his mother. And yet we know that Jesus loved his mother. He's hanging on the cross, dying and in terrible pain, and he's thinking about his mother, and he says to John, "'Behold your mother, uh, uh, mother behold your son.'" caring for his mother, even hanging on the cross. So this is not an issue of Jesus not loving his mother. What it is highlighting is the point that I'm getting at here, is that to be a Christian is to realize that I actually have two families. One is an earthly <clears throat> an earthly family. It is a temporary family. The other is a spiritual family, and it is an eternal one. My earthly one is an imperfect one, and it may be a messed up one. My heavenly one and my eternal one is a perfect family, and God is the father of it. And so the Christian then, dealing with the messed up family, if all my hope and the only family that I can ever identify with is this family that is so seriously messed up that I look at it and I go, I just, this is pain to me. It is a comfort to the Christian to say, this is my family, and this is my family. And I can love both families, but my identity and my sense of belonging and my hope for the future does not rest in my dad who left me and I haven't talked to him. Or my mom who has rejected me. Or my brothers and sisters who uh, are all passive-aggressive on me and I have no relationship with them. Because guess what? they are probably not going to change. In your whole life, you can live in this kind of like, there's probably psychology words for this, where I can't be happy unless they're happy with me. My whole identity is in their approval of me. Rather, as a Christian, God provides us an enduring eternal family that will be far better than any earthly family experience that you or I have ever had. Okay, so he doesn't replace the earthly family. Rather, he, this is not subtraction, this is addition. And is filled with hope. Something greater, something more enduring. You know, families, we, we want to think that our earthly families are going to last forever. And you see uh, families that try to give this sense that, hey, man, we're, we're in this together. If you go by a cemetery, you, you know, you, sometimes you'll see these big crypts some wealthy guy in town could afford to buy a family crypt and the idea is that when the family dies we you know we're all going to we're in this crypt forever together cuz we're a family forever and it's just a mirage isn't it right that family relationship will not endure death but the spiritual family and god is uh, my father and jesus is my brother and savior is a family relationship that lasts forever. And that's where our ultimate identity needs to be. Even though while we pray for our family, we try to be a peacemaker in our family, we try to be a reconciler in our family, I can't rest all my hope and happiness in my messed up family coming together and being the Waltons, who I think were messed up too, weren't they? I can't remember. But the Cleavers. I think that's an important point you're in a family christian and it's a really good one it's a really good one and jesus highlights this better family not based on biological dna that's what unites us with our biological family it is the spiritual dna of the gospel that unites us together one in christ we are every tribe tongue language nation and people we are all one in christ and this reality, for us right now, in fact, it's, it's uh, the old saying, you know, I can see if I can come up with it, um, to dwell above with the saints above, oh, that will be glory, but to dwell below with the saints I know, that's another story, all right? Have you heard that? You've all heard it. It wasn't funny then. Okay. So um, we look at the church and on this earth, even our church family and all that, lots of dysfunction, plenty of dysfunction right here in our own church. But the vision that is cast for us is a perfect one. Every longing for belonging that you've had in your entire life will be satisfied then. And it will be relationships and identity and care and acceptance that will last forever. And I can take comfort in that. Second resolution is a doctrinal one. I resolve to constantly remind myself that I am justified by faith, not by my family. I am justified by faith, not by my family. This doctrine of justification is a truth that would free so many of us from so much of the uh, anxiety that we deal with with the approval of others and especially family relationships the dealing with the rejection of family members justification what is justification okay justification is a holy god declaring sinners righteous okay How does he do that? Are we righteous? No, we are not. He declares us righteous by faith. And this kind of ties into substitutionary atonement and the death of Jesus on the cross as he bears our guilt. And by faith, when we believe, God grants to us the righteousness of Christ and promises that he will see us and treat us forever as if we are as righteous as Jesus himself. He declares us to be this. By faith. It's a wonderful doctrine, Luther said. It's the one on which the whole church rises and falls. Romans five one. therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how important it is for us as Christians to look at this and to realize that all of my righteous standing and all of my hope for now and for the future is based upon me receiving righteousness from god by faith and the reason that god does it by faith is that if i include anything other than faith it somehow gives me something to glory in i can boast in the fact that i have been saved it's a self-salvation but salvation by faith means that we receive all the good and god receives all the glory And it makes, it keeps that distinction clear that we don't do anything to be saved. It is a gift from God to us. Now, here's how it applies to this whole uh, messy family thing. It is so easy for us to go, oh yes, we are justified by faith, amen, amen, and then we get with our family, and we get into the chaos of these relationships, and there is something inside of us that wants to somehow believe that I am accepted or saved by the approval of my family. Or the perception of other people that my family has it all together. I can't let anybody know about the problems in my family. Why? Because what would they think about me? And God's in heaven going, I didn't save you because of your family. I didn't save you because your dad accepted you or not. I saved you on the basis of Jesus' work for you on the cross. And so this standing that we have has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with the mercy of God, the faith, the gift of faith to us in the work of Jesus. And when I resolve that I am not going to believe that I am saved by anything else than that, it keeps me from being as devastated when my family is all messed up. Because my hope is not in my family anyway. My salvation doesn't come from my family. So they're all messed up, yes, But I am righteous in the eyes of God by faith. I just think too many of us affirm that, but then we live like somebody, some other thing is our Savior. And then our family gets messed up and we're devastated more than we should be. Now I say that, family pain is arguably, the worst kind of pain. If my daughters reject me someday, I can't think of anything worse in my life. So I get that. But I have, as a Christian, I have to resolve to see my family and those relationships through the grid of what the Bible said is true. And that is what the Bible says is true. And it provides, then, an oasis when you're at your family and it's Christmas and you got a week there because you're riding back with your sister and she's not leaving till Saturday, and you're like, how am I going to survive seven days with my crazy family? Where, where do I go in my heart? Where's my refuge? My refuge is no matter what happens on this day, and no matter what she says and he says and all of that, the health of this is not where my hope is. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I came across this verse this week in my personal devotional reading, and I think it applies great. Psalm 27, verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This makes me think, dear friend, perhaps you're here right now, and your family has been a total disaster, and you've sought dad's approval, you know, in other, the arms of other men, or in substance abuse, or in this, that, or the other, your whole life has been like consumed with and defined by the dysfunction of your family, and you may your whole life never have their approval. I want you to see in that verse that our God is a God of the orphan and the widow, that he is a father to the fatherless. He is a good, good father. And he loves us, and he will take us in, no matter how messed up our family is. Third resolution. And this has to do with revenge. The need to get even. The escalation of hostilities. The resolution is that I don't have to get even. I don't have to have the last word. I don't have to have my sister say, okay, you're right. Why? Because Jesus will take care of that. Jesus will take care of that. Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, probably the best passage. If you're like, I have no idea how to deal with my crazy family, I would spend time working through Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Because here, the Apostle Paul basically, practically describes. The way that Jesus treated us when when he was on the cross. I mean, if anybody ever had the right to revenge, it would be the righteous Savior Jesus being murdered for sins and crimes that he did not commit. And yet, what does he say on the cross? Powerfully. Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they do. He was not an angry Savior on the cross. He was a gracious one. What does that look like in human relationships? That's what Paul describes here. Here's what he says, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are such great verses. If you are struggling with bitterness or anger towards your family or a family member in particular, Because to be in a family, again, if I go back to my chart, you always have that first quadrant stuff that's going on, right? He said this, you said that, then you did that, and don't you remember when that happened back in high school, and you've never said, I'm sorry for that, I haven't forgiven you for that, and uh, I've been thinking about it every single night, I've got four journals I've written about that, I'm so mad at you, and you're like, that was 30 years ago, what are you talking about? And Or maybe you're the one writing the, the, the journals and you're still mad about something that has happened in the past and we have these kind of, we have these sort of escalations where something maybe initially wasn't that offensive and it wasn't that consequential and it would have been easy to get over. But over time, it moves from this quadrant up to that quadrant. Because now, bitterness has taken root and that dysfunctional relationship has become the habit of how you relate to one another. What do we do? How do we handle... Family relationships where we want to hurt back, or maybe do this, get all passive-aggressive. Where you withdraw a relationship and say, oh, you're going to be like that? Well, then you will not be hearing from me. And that was like 30 years ago, right? Anybody in a Cold War with a family member? You know, you're not, you're not actually shooting at each other, but there's a Cold War going on. There is not warmth of relationship. There's hostility towards one another. And what Paul exhorts us here is basically to do this. Take whatever your natural response to that thing would be, and then do the opposite of it. Okay, so when somebody wrongs us, what do we want to do? You hit, you hit me right here, you my eye, here comes your you know, eye for an eye, vengeance is mine, I'm going to take care of this. That's how we naturally want to respond. What God says here by his Holy Spirit is that we are to take the example of Jesus on the cross and to apply the love that God has granted to us that we also did not deserve towards the family member in our life and to do the opposite of what we naturally want to do. We naturally want to give evil for evil. Here he says, overcome evil with good. In other words, you don't beat leukemia by pumping your body full of more leukemia. You beat leukemia by pumping your body full of healthy cells. And that infusion of good into that otherwise hostile, hostile relationship allows for a break in the cycle of the escalating of hostilities. And is, who's gonna do that? Is it gonna be the unbeliever in the family? who's likely going to go, you know what, I think I'm going to extend mercy to you. You don't deserve this, but let's, let's have a come-to-Jesus moment. They're not going to do that. They don't have the Holy Spirit. It is the Christian who has tasted of the grace of God, knows that I don't deserve the grace of God any more than she deserves my grace because of what she did to me, but I am going to treat her like God has treated me and to break that cycle of escalation. And I just want to challenge you specifically right now. I've been talking about all this. I would imagine most of us here have a family member whose face or name has come to our mind as the person in your life that applies, this most applies to. Can I challenge you, what would practical application of Romans 12 towards that family member, what would that look like if you were to resolve to leave this place, go home and do it? Might it be maybe just a text that sort of is soft-sounding, you know? I don't hate you anymore. (laughs) Might be a positive first step. Or I don't hate you as much anymore (laughs) because Pastor Steve said I can't. Or maybe it's much more than that. What would God have you do as a step of love and grace that that person does not deserve that would reflect the way that God has treated you in Jesus? And can I challenge you to go and to do it? It is not easy, especially, you know, it's easier with a coworker than with a family member. There's something about a family member where you're like, oh, oh you, know, you think about it, you're like, I just don't know. I don't think so. Love might mean stopping the enabling of their dysfunction with some kind of a wise boundary or a new approach. That might be love's calling as well, and that could be a whole other sermon. The point is this, love them and leave justice to God. You are not God, you are not judge, you are not jury, and you don't have to be. God has promised there is heaven, hell, and the cross. Every wrong that every Christian has ever committed was paid for on the cross. I don't have to add the, sufficient, the cross was sufficient. Hell is where God will root out justice on the unbeliever and will do so forever. And if you think either of those are insufficient and you need to do something on top of that, you're the one with a the bad theology. One, one guy said it this way. As long as you are tangled in wrong and revenge, blow and counterblow, aggression and defense, you will be constantly drawn into fresh wrong. Only forgiveness frees us from the injustice of others. How true. All right, here's the fourth, fourth resolution, last one. I will strive to turn the messes into mercies. The messes into mercies. John Bloom, desiring God, good writer guy, says this on this very point, and I borrowed this point from him. Family harmony is a good desire and something to work toward. But in God's plan, it may not be what is most needed. What may be most needed is our, for our family to be a crucible of grace, a place where the heat of pressure forces sin to surface, providing opportunities for the gospel to be understood and applied. And when this happens, the messes, become mercies. And what Bloom is saying there is that it's so easy to look, we look at the problems and we're like, oh, it's terrible, when in reality, our problems are opportunities in our families. Don't waste conflict. Use them for positive good. I've learned this in marriage. You know, when Jennifer and I are in conflict, like the two times in our whole marriage we have, (laughs) and I say that because she's not here and I don't want to get, you know, but when, when we're in conflict, okay, we are disagreeing, maybe sharply disagreeing about something. I don't naturally like those moments. But I've learned a little that these are moments where I don't have to wonder if she's getting the real me. Because conflict is when we are speaking from the heart. And when she is speaking uh, emotionally or whatever, I am getting the real her. And I can look at it and say, this is stupid, let's not do it. I can get passive aggressive and go, you come talk to me, you know, when you calm down, like in a month. (laughs) I could say that, but what is best is for me to capture that moment and say, this is an opportunity for grace to do its best work. For every day you have without conflict... That conflict is an opportunity to grow in your relationship to God as I apply it and to my wife or family member as I appropriate that grace to her. And so when we do this, we are turning these messes into mercies. Now, I can hear you right now going, oh, this is you dragged me to church today, honey. I can't believe I got to listen to this drivel because you're saying this guy's up there and he's saying that with my family member, who is a scoundrel, he is a sinner, he is full of pride, he's saying that I've got to love somebody like that. I can't do it. And I'm here to tell you every single one of us is really, really good at faithfully loving a sinful scoundrel. And we have tons of experience doing so. Like who is he talking about? Well, CS Lewis wrestled with this. How do you love how do you love the sin or the sinner but hate the sin? And he writes very poignantly this Years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I had the things, that, uh, the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was sort of the, the, the sort of man who did those things. And you get the point, don't you? We all are sinners, we all are scoundrels, and we all easily go on loving ourselves every single day. We're good at it, aren't we? So what is this saying? It is saying this, that if I can love my neighbor as myself, my family member who is my neighbor, and I have loved myself in spite of my sin for my entire life. Can I love my neighbor with the same kind of enduring, grace-filled, mercy-filled love that I have been extending to myself my entire life? Now, you might be here going, I can't even look at my sister like my neighbor, like she's my enemy. Guess what the Bible also says? Love your enemies. So if you can't treat your sister like your neighbor, treat her like your enemy and love her anyway, okay? And don't think, I have to make this right. She has to grovel. I have to win. It doesn't matter. You're in the crypt someday. It doesn't matter. God is the judge. And when I get that he's going to make all this right, it frees me from having to feel all this injustice, and I can love those who have misused me, spoken against me, not been family to me. And when that family continues in dysfunction, I can rest in the fact that I have brothers, sisters, and a heavenly father forever who will be the perfect family to me. It's a perfect family someday, everyone. It's a perfect family someday. So love the earthly, love the temporary, love the biological DNA, but have your identity and your hope in the eternal. And that's how at least some help to deal when your family is seriously messed up. And I hope that's a help to you today. Amen.